for me, I have like 40 different 1099s at the end of the year. I just try to hustle. It's a freelance hustle. And that's not for everybody. And I don't know that I'll want to keep doing it. Welcome to Story Geometry, the podcast about the craft and community of writing with insights from leading published authors of our day, like writer, teacher, and journalist, that's Steve Almond. I'm your host, aspiring novelist and filmmaker, Ben Hess. This is episode seven, our second volume of the oft-dreaded but oh-so-necessary exploration on the business of writing. Through ongoing research and interviews with Steve, Pam Houston, and many others, I'm breaking down this nutty, evolving business into three high-level categories. Number one, patronage, support, the funding of our art. Number two, publishing. Whether traditional or self, large press or small. Number three, distribution and promotion. And regardless of number two, much of this is left to the author. Coming up, we're going to explore these three areas from the diverse experiences of poet, writer, novelist, and musician, Greg Glazner, creative nonfiction writer, teacher, and memoirist, Gary Ferguson, the publishing trials and tribulations with poet, memoirist, Tanya Chernoff. And of course, there is much, much more from Steve Almond. As if that's not enough, I am thrilled to announce a new sponsor, Spoken Word Inc., more about them soon, so stay with us. Do the holiday blues have you down? Are you surfing and scrolling in vain to find the gift for that seasoned or aspiring writer in your life? Look no further. Simply visit writingxwriters.org to see a mouthwatering array of 2016 literary workshops, adventures, and conferences. This, of course, is the online home of my partner, Writing by Writers, and they'd love to have you join them for their third annual generative workshop in Boulder, Colorado, April 8th through the 10th. Whether a new student or alumni, you can save $100 off tuition by using code GEOMETRY when you register for the workshop before December 25th. Every artist in history has had to find a patron, unless you're just born into wealth, and then your inheritance is your patron. Again, Steve Almond. We chatted outside on a gorgeous fall day in Tomales Bay, California. A small plane's buzzed overhead, and a breeze blew in off the water. You got to find a way to make the work sustainable, and you're most successful when you uncouple artistic creation from financial expectation, or I have been. Ullman's books include the short fiction collection, My Life in Heavy Metal, creative nonfiction, Candy Freak, and the researched, thoughtful book, Against Football, One Fan's Reluctant Manifesto. You're dancing between different genre, different form, essay, memoir, fiction, short fiction. Yeah. How does that work for you? It's tough at this point in my life. Like, I've got three kids. My wife's a writer, but she's a serious literary writer who I want to have time to pursue that without the pressure of having to make money. Um, if she wants to make money and have a job outside the house, then she can. But we got three little kids. We're trying to really be present in their lives. I always am also working on either have just failed at writing a novel or just am preparing to fail at a novel. That's my, you know, my white whale. So, you know, I'm doing that as well. And I'm trying to make money and I'm trying to be a good husband. I'm trying to be a good dad and I'm trying to be a good teacher. And, you know, it's pretty busy. And I'm trying to steal enough time or earn enough time doing the money work and other stuff 
to write some good short stories and kind of re-enter that world of fiction where things are run through the artistic unconscious and your imaginative combine. In case you're not aware, but as you can probably hear, Steve's an audio pro. He co-hosts the wonderful, honest, Dear Sugar Advice podcast with writer Cheryl Strait in partnership with WBUR in Boston. And yes, this provides Steve another one of those 1099s, those freelance income streams. I opened my chat with Steve asking about the origins of his latest book. The genesis of, uh, of Against Football was I'd been thinking about being a sports fan and what, what that means, why it has such a hold on me, my own masculine identity, what's happening in the culture at large, our attraction to violence and just sports has gotten so much bigger and bigger and bigger and so as a human being a dude in america at this time trying to figure out you know how and why our culture is going haywire sports is a part of it and you chose to go with a traditional publisher well uh, the traditional publisher wrote me and said would you want to write a book about football i read your piece in the new york times and i said yeah you know, oftentimes that's what happens. I'm a former journalist, still am a journalist, and that's partly how I pay the bills. So I'm used to somebody saying, oh, I'm interested in this, would you like to do it? Now, if I had it to do over again, honestly, I think maybe I should have under my own steam figured out that this was a book that I wanted to work on, but I'm not very organized in my career. As I'm earlier in my literary life, here's what I wonder. Can a freelancer, an artist, a writer have an organized career? Or is planning the proverbial fool's errand? Teacher, musician, poet, novelist, Greg Glazner also spoke about the challenges of income and freelance work while pursuing publication of his first novel, Opening the World. This after publishing two books of award-winning poetry, From the Iron Chair and Singularity both from W.W. Norton. You've excerpted parts of Opening the World in different publications, and can you give an update on where you stand with the novel and in terms of its kind of publication journey? The novel's completed, at least until somebody tells me I have to work on it again. A couple of editors have expressed pretty enthusiastic interest in it. I mean, it's been out there for a while. And, you know, with enthusiastic interest and $3.50, you can get a cup of coffee. So I don't, it's not under contract. It, it is on the desk of somebody interested in it. And we're going to have to see. So just on the objective stuff, that's where it stands in, in currently in limbo. And right now you're, you're balancing teaching at UC Davis, you're a musician, you're, you're writing. Are you carving out that time what has worked for you or, or or has something worked for you consistently i've had different streams on this you know for several years there after my college closed uh, i didn't have enough work i had plenty of time to write i needed time to make money you know <laughs> and now i have, I have full-time work and so i'm back to the question that you just raised where do i carve the time out for writing i've always done that i've often taught a pretty heavy load and and still found, and time. Still found time, to, time to write and I, so the way i do it's simple there are crunch times when i can't write you know when i just have to do my work but when it's not a crunch time I say all right I write Tuesday Thursday Friday mornings from 8 a.m. to 11 a.m. that's my writing time but I recommend that strongly that if you let the day just be what it is everything else has a way of taking over isn't that always the case I found over the years that I use time much more efficiently when traveling limited time in a given country or city forces productivity also, deadlines are crucial to drive toward. 
to force the creaky cogs of creativity down the track. We've heard from both Steve and Greg about issues with pursuing the patronage of their writing. I also asked Greg, given that we're in 2015, e-readers, self-publishing, have you thought about just eh, taking it back and thinking, oh, I'm just going to do it myself? Yeah, I have thought about that. Or go to a really indie style uh, publisher is another, another possibility. Just kind of taking my time with this. I don't see any pressing reason to decide right now. It's at a good press right now. And I agree with you. I agree with the spirit of your comment that the literary world is, is going indie in a big way. I mean, that's where it's going. There's a new press every five minutes that's just started up. And some of those small presses are great. I'm just taking my time with it. I'm not currently thinking about the roots that you, you mentioned. I'm just going to let this go for a while and just see where it goes. I admire Greg's patience, his long view of the process. I am far too impatient, I think. And Steve offered some added perspective. What I caution people to do is to think about what they want out of a publishing experience. Since you do now have a choice, if you want the imprimatur of a New York publisher, I want my book published. I want somebody to help me out with that. I want that partnership. I want the imprimatur of their editing and they're having selected me and I got it. Then you have to, to the extent that your talent and patient allows it, make that happen. Don't self-publish and pretend that the world's going to suddenly be aware of you. Just because you can press print on a machine and a book comes out doesn't make you, quote unquote, a great writer or an author. It makes you somebody who can use technology to produce something, right? right? So, So I really caution people on this to think about, well, what is your intention with this project? You know, when you publish a book with a publisher, it's, it is a, an arranged marriage between an artist and a corporation. And no matter how benign those corporations are, and they are very benign, they're in the business of publishing books, good on them, they're still a corporation. Mm-hmm. They still have a commercial motive. And the artist has their own agenda and their own motive. And, and in the felicitous circumstances, those two collaborate and everybody's happy and it's a good marriage. But my experience was that Many of the marriages were, you know, kind of like short-lived and not that happy. Before we spiral any deeper and darker, a brief pause to say you're listening to Story Geometry, Episode 7, The Business of Writing, Volume 2. I'm your host, Ben Hess. Back in Episode 4, you heard from my spring chat with creative nonfiction writer and memoirist Gary Ferguson. We talked about many things, including alternative forms of distribution. And he said, I do think that people are always going to be hungry for story. And those who produce good stories and figure out the system by which to get them into the hands of the people who need them and want them will survive in one form or another. I think audiobooks is, a, is another area that's exploding right now. Now, perhaps Gary could see into Story Geometry's future, because today's episode is brought to you by our inaugural sponsor, Spoken Word Inc., the independent audiobook publisher. Spoken Word will publish your audiobook and get it pumping through the largest distribution network available to authors anywhere. Audiobooks like the wildly praised F-250 by New Jersey poet and novelist Bud Smith. With Spoken Word, Inc., authors call the creative shots and receive the highest share of royalties. That means more control of your work and more money in your pocket. Go to SpokenWordInc.com and turn your story into your audiobook. Coming up, a first-person tale from poet and memoirist Tanya Chernoff in the traditional publication trenches. More thoughts from Steve Almond and a delightful reading from Greg Glazner, all when our program continues. Mm-hmm.
Tanya Chernov. I am a writer living in Seattle, Washington. I've written two books. The first is a memoir called A Real Emotional Girl. The second is an anthology of poems on illness and loss called The Burden of Light. And I'm working on a novel right now. I got my MFA at the Northwest Institute of Literary Arts, the Whidbey Writers Workshop. It's on Whidbey Island off the coast of Seattle in a pretty gorgeous spot. Tanya and I chatted via Skype. And for you loyal story geometricians, you may remember that she was mentioned in our first look at the business of writing back in episode four. Here's her agent, Gordon Warnock, from Fuse Literary Agency. I sold a few projects early on, um, a cookbook, a business book, and and various other things like that. Um, The first one that really stuck out in my mind, though, it it came a little while in. Um, It's called The Real Emotional Girl by Tanya Chernoff, and it's one of my um, favorite projects that I've worked on. When it came to me, it needed a bit of work, but I could tell the language was, was just amazing. And so I worked with her to edit for about a year on that. So I wanted to get your perspective from the author's point of view. But first of all, congratulations. When I first reached out to you, ironically, it was your wedding week, like the middle of chaos. Was, yes. And then I, I just, I started a new job like the next week. So it's wow. been a crazy time. Yes. Over what period of time from getting introduced to Gordon to the actual sale of the book? Uh, what, 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 what was the duration of time and how was that revision process for you? We revised together for about a year. And then it was ready to pitch. And then it took another two years of pitching before we got an offer. I think I broke the, the agency record for a number of uh, rejections. <laughs> and to Gordon's credit, he kept trying. Um, I, there aren't a lot of agents out there who will do that. Some of them, you know, maybe after five rejections move along. I think we had something like uh, close to 60. Wow. Yes. And we got, we kept getting these wonderful, very kind, encouraging rejections, which were terribly heartbreaking. Gordon was nice enough to pass along the kind notes where people would say, the book is incredible, you're incredible, but we're not going to take it. After all that time and all the revisions and all the rejections, tell me about the moment that you get the phone call. Did Gordon tell you that there's actually interest and, and an offer? You know, this was 2000. 11. Um, the self-publishing landscape was was quite different than it is now. So for me as a, as a literary author, as somebody who hopes to publish many books in her career, I felt that self-publishing would be sort of a career kiss of death. So I had decided, and, and Gordon and I talked about it together, that I would go ahead and put this manuscript in a drawer for a while and maybe go on to write some other things and, and come back to it if, if I needed to. So we had really, um, at least I had let it go. Then he called, um, actually on my 30th birthday and said, Hey, we've got an offer. And I was, that's quite a birthday present. It is quite a birthday present. It, it felt triumphant and very satisfying and, you know, I also just felt a lot of appreciation to my father for having kind of planted that seed in my brain that you can do this, you can write books. And then and then another, actually a second offer came in and, and for a short time the book went to auction and there was a little battle over the book. That was quite fun. What a perfect result after such an incredible journey. Given all this, what, what advice would you give unpublished writers? I would like to say that for writers today, 
maybe 20% of your entire writing career is the actual writing, is sitting, you know, button chair in front of the computer, pen and paper, that the other 80% is promotion and curation and education. Um, and I think that's the reality of this industry, that this is a long, hopefully a long career, and you've got to pace yourself and live with what you're doing. So you've got to sort of navigate this new world and figure out what works for you and don't feel pressured to do everything. Promotion, curation, and education. Words of wisdom. It's interesting to hear the 2080 breakdown. That's probably quite accurate, but also quite discouraging. <laughs> it is. It's, it's hard. And so that's why you have to really have a conversation with yourself about what you're in this thing for. Do you write because you want to make money? Well, you might want to try something else. If you are writing because you want to get published, okay, great. Let's figure out how to do that. If you're writing because you love to write and you just feel this undeniable compulsion to do so, then then understand that and come at it from that place. And I think just having that, that foundation will really help drive um, how your career manifests. Or as Steve Ullman said, my dad said to me years ago, you know, sorry, kid, time really is money. And he's right. So I say to a lot of younger writers, you do have to face that you want to make it sustainable. And, you know, you have to do a self-inventory of what your needs are. And that changes over the years. When I was a single guy, you know, bacterial apartment in Somerville, Massachusetts, I didn't need that much, you know, money for pasta and CDs and pot. And that was it. You know, now it's big and complicated. So I've had to sort of figure out how to construct this life. And it's still under construction. And not only has Steve seemingly conducted his own self-inventory around his intentions with writing and publishing, He's also pushing the boundaries on distribution and promotion. I wanted the experience, since the technology existed, of making a book that was a weird little idiosyncratic book that would move into the world in a much more personal way. Mm -hmm. And that rather than it being a commodity that would rent space in a bookstore or on Amazon, it would be an artifact that would commemorate a human gathering, like I read last night. It's my pleasure to introduce Steve Almond. <laughs> I'm going to read a lot from these crazy little drug dealer books of mine, uh, which I'm happy to sell to you. They're not available on the internet. They're just through me in cash like a drug dealer. Now I'm going to read from letters from people who hate me, which Pam had mentioned. Here's a book full of letters from people who do hate me. Just in case you're offended by bad language, I suggest skipping ahead a mere 49 seconds. And for the rest of you, well, in true story geometry spirit, turn it up. Steve, you are such a pussy. <laughs> and that is from Brian Holmes. <laughs> Brian. A couple of things. First, the word pussy is spelled P-U-S-S-Y, not P-U-S-S-I-E, which I think would lead most people to conclude that I suffer from an excess of pus. I do not. So I read from these little books and people go, that was funny or I enjoyed that or that was meaningful or I like that guy's writing. And then they can walk up and hand me money and I, the artist, will hand them a book. And it's, it just cuts out the middleman and it forces 
people in a way to recognize that books matter and they can move into the world in all sorts of different ways. You know, Lydia Yuknovich was saying, you know, we got to find new ways of telling stories. And it's also true that, you know, you got to get outside of the standard box of what's acceptable. And if the book is personal and idiosyncratic, then it makes sense for it to move into the world in a way that's more personal and idiosyncratic. And that the artist who labors to produce that book deserves some money because mm-hmm. I got to support myself. I don't like the feeling of hawking them because it's a little humiliating, but I like that it's sending the message to people that this is possible. It's possible to put art into the world in this way. Before Steve's reading, and having not met him before, I did feel he was hawking his small books, those drug deal books. And I felt not embarrassed exactly, but discouraged with a thought that after several book deals, countless columns and assignments, teaching gigs, a podcast, this is the path he's on and that I'm not even close to that level of output and storytelling. But I love his unabashed honesty, that attitude of here are some things I wrote that are affordable and only available in person. I want to close our somewhat heavy discussion on the business of writing volume two with a walk on the lighter side. Here's a reading from Greg Glazner in his essay, Foul Ball, which is included in the new anthology, Brief Encounters, a collection of contemporary nonfiction. As you'll hear, it prompted quite a bit of reaction from the faculty and students at the recent Tomales Bay Writing by Writers Conference. This is in large part due to the care Greg took to construct the retelling of a real event, the structure, the pace, the humor, and also because of his personal, self-effacing delivery. This one seems so well-written for the spoken word, I just had to share it with much appreciation to Greg for permission. Prose, nonfiction. Don't look at me funny after I read this, okay? You're, you're gonna see what I mean, okay? We climbed into Pam's car on a cloudless May afternoon, headed to a Sacramento River Cats baseball game, and I was thinking about the word community. I have no idea why. Pam's new novel was out, and she'd gotten back to our part-time home in California from an Oregon reading. This was our first outing together in a while. So of course I buckled up and said to her, what is my community? She just put it in reverse, not even shaking her head. She's used to me. I said, I mean, I belong to what? The pasty older poet guy community? Well, A, we're not a community, and B, it's pathetic even as a metaphor. Who'd want to who'd belong to that? She smiled, adjusted her baseball cap, and said, it has been way too long since I have seen a hot dog cannon. <laughs> this is the way we talk anymore. Only our text messages stay on point. I said, I know there aren't any literal communities anymore, but couldn't I at least belong to some better language? Is that so wrong? I arched my massive eyebrows to try to get a laugh out of her. She glanced over, squinting at my shirt, and said, is that bird crap? I looked down. It was. I looked at the sky. What are the odds, I said, feeling kind of unique. She accelerated towards Sacramento and said, I bet we see a couple of rehabbing big leaguers today. 
The weather at Rayleigh Field was ideal. Our seats only a few rows from the short AAA backstop and friends, John and Lisa, were sitting nearby. We spent the first inning catching up. Then I set out to scout for bratwurst for Pam, wandering the park happily, thinking a lot about food and baseball and almost none about what community I might or might not belong to. I got to the Jack Daniels balcony over right field just in time to hear, now batting for Salt Lake City, Brad Hop. Our Brad Hop? We live half the year in Colorado and are Rockies fans. At Coors Field, I'd seen Hop bat quite a few times, bouncy and pigeon-toed, not to mention watching him nearly homer on TV in the 2009 All-Star game. In a couple of pitches, there was an unmistakable bat crack and the ball sailed over left center fence. I texted Brad Hop in case Pam had been talking to John and Lisa. Our Brad Hop, she texted right back, right on point. I couldn't imagine what Hop was doing playing for the Bees. Neither could the LA Angels, it turned out, who called him up a few weeks later. The Jack Daniels balcony was devoid of bratwurst, but down on the concourse, I found a stand and got Pam's the way she likes, peppers and onions, mustard, sauerkraut, got my own minus the sauerkraut, and with a plate in each hand, started down the steps, pausing to pick her out of the crowd near the backstop. There was a sudden white smear, a searing, unfathomable pain in my privates. One of the brats upside down on the concourse, the other right side up in its plate, and I was down on all fours, meditating on the solar agony radiating from my groin. A baseball was rolling under the nearby seats. How had I gone so quickly from thoughtful bratwurst bearing guy to butt of the oldest joke in the book? What are the odds? I concentrated on ruling out fainting or regurgitating. Down by the backstop, Pam's world, I'd later learn, had been very different from mine. She had said, did that hit somebody? Lisa said, some guy just got it in the crotch. And John said, luckily it was an older guy. And everybody laughed. And in a few minutes, there was some talk about what could be taking me so long with the brats. Back in my world, an EMT was looking down at me, a kindly guy around 65, curly hair, round face, glasses, and a stocky guy from nearby had stationed himself behind me as if I might fall off my step, even on all fours. Where did it hit you, the EMT said. Right in the... I nodded. Can you get up? I shook my head no and stayed put. A younger female EMT joined the crowd I'd drawn. Where did it hit you, she said. Right in the, I said. I longed to spend some quiet time looking at my concrete step, but I held my head up to talk. Alarmingly, she was pulling on some latex gloves. Can you get up, she asked. And if all this echoing talk was funny, it was lost on me. I wasn't about to get up, not with solar flares blazing out of my inheritance and no blood getting to my brain and her wearing those gloves and me as overdue as I was for that exam. So I permitted myself to study a whole stretch of concrete. 
The good bratwurst was upright near the wrecked one, and some younger EMT was on all fours at my level, cleaning up. Hey, that one brat is still good, I said in an alien-sounding groan voice. A kind but queasy look on his face, he said, who's it for? I couldn't remember how to answer that kind of question. I said, Pam, and pointed toward the backstop. Pam, he said, glancing down there. What does she look like? Language was being siphoned out of my head and used as fuel for the Nova going off in my heritage area. Okay, do you have your ticket, he asked. Meanwhile, down in Pam's world, everyone was still craning around backward. A woman who'd been on her phone asked, what happened up there? Some guy got hit, John said. Oh no, where, she asked, and three answers came in simultaneously. In the nuts, Pam said. In the groin, John said. Where it counts, said Lisa. <laughs> and right about then, a guy in an EMT uniform, a bratwurst in one hand and a ticket in the other, leaned over from the aisle and said, if you're Pam, this is for you. After a brief wheelchair ride, my world was centered in some kind of cinder block first aid room. The grandfatherly EMT took my blood pressure 160 over 80. He was clearly impressed. The woman EMT, scarily thin it seemed to me, all business was pulling her gloves up, letting the latex snap. She said, how old are you? I said 55 and a sinister scenario started spinning out of control in my mind. But then Pam was opening the door, wearing that ultra-calm, neutral look she gets when things are dicey. She asked, how you doing? Willing herself, I believed, to keep her eyes from dropping to my pants. With Pam there, I knew I was in the clear with the glove-wearing EMT. Who asked me if I wanted something to, to eat. I said, bratwurst. And Pam filled her in on how I liked them. Really thirsty, I added, could I get some sparkling water, Perrier or something? She laid a gloved hand on my shoulder and said in her gravelly voice, honey, you're at a ballpark. And before long, I had a Sprite, a Brat, a blood pressure reading of 120 over 80, and the offending baseball. When Pam and I ambled slowly, arm in arm, back down to our seats, there was stadium-wide sympathy applause. Embarrassed, I still knew I had capital to spend. I asked Pam who fouled the pitch, and true to sports-savvy form, she worked through the at-bats and pointed to number 10 on her program, Trent Oltgen. I described my plan and headed over to the security guy assigned to the B's dugout. From his kind, wincing look under that riverboat gambler's hat that outfitted him in, I knew I was in business. When I told him what I wanted, he leaned over for a word with B's coach, Keith Jack Johnson, who waved the tall, dark-haired Oltgen over. I handed the ball down to him. Sorry about that, mate, he said, signing. Was he Australian? Maybe the only Australian in AAA? But before I could process that information, I spotted Brad Hopp. Hey, could Hopp sign too? Oltgen shrugged, took him the ball, said something. A laughing Brad Hopp signed it and walked over, taller than I'd expected, curly-haired with his cap off. How old are you, he asked, <laughs> handing the ball up. Was I wearing some kind of older poet dude ID badge today? 
55, I said. He half grinned and said, so it's mostly for show now anyway, right? <laughs> and walked back in to get his glove. Sitting by Pam with my autographs, after inquiries from friends and strangers alike about my, well, health, I swallowed the, em the embarrassment studying the backstops caution diagrams. A man getting hit in the head with a baseball, a woman getting hit in the head with a bat. I was grateful there wasn't a third diagram with my name and situation on it. And I was grateful for other things. Grateful it had happened at Rayleigh Park and not at Coors Field where it would have been on TV. Grateful it couldn't go viral on YouTube. Spawning a new injury term as in, oh man, that dude just got glazed <laughs> We stayed to the end trying to root for the River Cats, but things kept seeming a little off. Pam texted our acupuncturist friend Denise for treatment advice. I said, tell her not to even think about needles. <laughs> Pam's text ended, luckily he's a burly poet, and Denise replied, yes siree, Bob. When Pam told me Denise was suggesting a Chinese healing paste mixed into yogurt, I said, tell her we're in row five for crying out loud. Denise asked if we had ice, and Pam texted, no, but we can get ice cream. She replied, oh, don't say that. In fact, I wanted ice cream. Back on the concourse, people asked how I was. I could feel them welding their eyes to mine to keep from looking lower. What did they want me to say? I think I'll still be able to? Nothing's leaking? Nothing fell off? What? One woman said, did you get in the hit in the stomach? And I said, oh, it was a little worse than that. Heading back with a scoop of chocolate, I met a succession of older guys. One clapped my shoulder and said, you okay? One smiled, told me a story of his own that involved a toddler with a croquet mallet. <laughs> Stocky guy who looked familiar said, I was the guy behind you. I made sure you didn't fall off your step. Thanks, I said. Not sure how to come to terms with all this solidarity. I was a catcher in college, he said, giving me a knowing look that only the deeply bonded could ever share. <laughs> on the drive home, I said, this isn't going on your Facebook page, is it? She said, we better get you some ice. <laughs> I said, couldn't you post something about your reading in Portland? She said, and yogurt. We better get some yogurt too, and patted my knee. That night, her Facebook page was flooded with sympathetic comments. Jeannie from Seattle said, tell him it was because the target was so huge. Guys love that. <laughs> Sam from Arizona said, I can't wait for the haiku that memorializes this. But it wasn't until morning that a post by Frank from Sacramento helped me see the bonding I'd be part of for life. Let him know that guys are wincing with him throughout the nation. And the haiku came flooding forth. Spring's full blossom in older foul ball poet dude, proud swell, belonging. <laughs>We'll have another look at the business of writing in the new year. But first, coming up in our next episode, which is episode eight, Filling Your Toolbox, here's award-winning author and teacher Pam Houston talking craft outside on a fall evening at Writing by Writers inaugural literary adventure, kayaking in the San Juan Islands. A couple of things about dialogue. In 
prose, in fiction, in, in literary nonfiction. Dialogue, well, the first thing to say about it is, is, we were just talking about the second person and the way it invites the reader in to the story. Dialogue does the same thing. And this is why I encourage people who are afraid of dialogue to try to write it. Of course, visit writingxwriters.org to see where their 2016 adventures, workshops, and conferences could take you. Thanks so much for listening to The Business of Writing, Volume 2. I'm your host and editor, at Ben Hess on Twitter, Instagram. Warm thanks to Steve Allman, Greg Glazner, Tanya Chernoff, and Gary Ferguson for candidly sharing their insights, their challenges, and perspectives. Don't forget to visit today's sponsor, SpokenWordInc.com, to explore audiobook magic. Our theme music is from Mark Hodgkin, and additional tracks are from Greg Glazner's band, The Responders. Be sure to rate and review Story Geometry in iTunes, send feedback via storygeometry.org, and don't forget that promo code geometry at writingxwriters.org for the 2016 Boulder Generative Workshop, and use that code by December 25th. Thanks for listening.